the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, August 3rd. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show we'll be examining the Construction Industry Federation's proposals to make it easier for first-time buyers to get a mortgage. Later in the show, our technology reporter Kira O'Brien will join me in studio to review Samsung's latest smartphone. And don't forget, you can download the Business Podcast for free from iTunes and you'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. But first to the Construction Industry's proposals on mortgage lending. At the end of last month, the CIF made a submission to to the central bank's review of its macro prudential rules. These rules require most buyers to have a 20% deposit before they can secure a home loan. For first-time buyers, it's 10% on the first €220,000 and 20% on the balance. In addition, buyers can only borrow three and a half times their income. Introduced last year, the rules are seen as the reason why mortgage lending is sluggish in Ireland and why our property market is so dysfunctional. To get lending moving, the CIF wants the regulator to relax the rules to help first-time buyers get on the property ladder. And here to discuss that with me is the CIF Director Hubert Fitzpatrick, and I'm also joined in studio by Cliff Taylor, business editor of the Irish Times, who I'm hoping will give us in, some insight from the regulator's viewpoint as to why these rules were introduced and why they're in place. Uh, Hubert, we might just start with yourselves. You've made a, a fairly lengthy submission to this uh, review of the macro prudential rules, which the, the regulator has in train at the moment. The, the calls for submissions uh, to be done by this month, uh, and then we'll have a decision in November. Um, just talk us through those rules, uh, in particular the, the threshold. I mentioned the fact that for the first 220000 of a uh, house purchase price for a first-time buyer, it's a 10% deposit and 20% on the balance. You want that threshold lifted? Yeah, we feel that threshold is low, particularly in the greater city areas. If you look at the cost of building a new house, uh, the sales price of a new house in Dublin, for instance, you won't get a new house for less than €300,000, €330,000. And quite frankly, looking for a 20% deposit of the excess over 200, €220,000, we feel mm. is excessive. Um, granted, house prices throughout the country are very, very different. And the current central bank rules work very effectively in many, many parts of the country. So you want that threshold li- lifted to this 330000 level? We feel that if you lift it to €330,000, it would uh, give a first-time buyer relief of about €11,000 of an extra deposit they have to come up with. So they'd have to have a deposit of €33,000 under your proposal. Uh, currently, it's about forty-four. It's about 44000 I, I think that would make it easier for first-time buyers to get, on, to get on the property ladder. What we must remember is that a lot of first-time buyers today have been living in rented accommodation for a number of years. They're paying rents which might equate to perhaps the repayments on a mortgage. Mm. But the central bank policies don't give any recognition for that. And we feel that there should be some flexibility given there where where a first-time buyer has a demonstrated capability of repaying a mortgage, where affordability criteria can be met, that the policy, the central bank policy, should facilitate the mortgage in that instance. Now, these rules were introduced at the start of last year. Do we have any data on how many first-time buyers actually paid more than €220,000 for the house? I I don't have that data, but suffice to say that any new houses uh, coming on the market in various areas of Dublin won't won't be less than €220,000. There are many houses also for less than €300,000 in, for instance, North County Dublin or West County Dublin, where they're not they're not they're not selling as quickly because the first time buyers have a difficulty in securing the deposit. So we feel that if 
the deposit requirements was relaxed or if there was some relaxation on the loan to income criteria the loan to income criteria yeah let's talk about that because at the minute it's three and a half times a borrower's income yeah. that's the limit they can borrow you'd like to see that increase to four or four and a half times yes but but it's on the basis that affordability criteria are met in all cases we don't want a situation that buyers are over borrowing or over exposing themselves but in cases where they have a proven capacity to pay rent they've a proven capacity to pay a mortgage that uh, the flexibility should be provided in the regulations to enable that to take place. Yeah, but who decides on the affordability piece? Well, I think each each, each bank has been able to assess that criteria. Mm, do a great job basis. of it now in the run-up to the crash. No, and, and, and I totally agree that the policies in the run-up to the crash were totally inappropriate. We should have never had 100% mortgages. Uh, and I think lessons have been learned from that. Mm. We need a macroprudential policy. Have your members learned that lesson, though? Because I don't recall too many uh, property developers crying out at the time saying that 100% mortgages or mortgage checkbooks and all that kind of stuff, that they were outrageous, they shouldn't be happening. And I think, I think everybody with the benefit of hindsight will say, no, this should have never happened. Yeah. But we're now in a new environment. We have to ensure that um, we have appropriate lending policies, that people are borrowing according to their means, that they're able to re- repay the mortgages. But we also have to ensure then that, you know, we don't keep people in a trap of renting on an ongoing basis when they could otherwise afford to pay a mortgage. Uh, the current uncertainty regarding mortgage availability is acting as a constraint on building of new starter homes. And we feel that if there was a greater certainty out there that would-be purchasers would have the required mortgage to buy the, buy the home, that the providers of development finance would, that make, would, that, would make that available to the industry to build more starter homes, giving more choice and giving more competition. Cliff, maybe let's take a step back. Why did the central bank introduce these rules at the beginning of last year and what effect have they had? Sure, well, I suppose if you go back, if you go back many years... Uh, there used to always be a rule that uh, the amount of mortgage that uh, a couple could get was twice the income of the main earner and one times the income of the of the secondary earner. Uh, go, going back to the old days, and I suppose gradually, through the through the uh, through the years and in the run up to the crash, particularly the rules were, were loosened and loosened and loosened. And well, there were Huber, no rules. That was. Were, I was going to say, as Hubert said, eventually we, we ended up with no rules and hundred percent mortgages. And you know everyone agrees that uh, you know that was that was uh, that was storing up trouble and, and inflating prices way beyond any anywhere they should have gone. So I suppose the central bank, in, in the wake of the crash, seeing the housing market and prices in Dublin starting to rise sharply again, um, seeing loans starting to go out from banks again, just started to get worried and said, "Look, we need to we need to send out a marker here. We need to send out a signal to the market that we can't go back to where we were before." I think it was probably seen by the central bank as kind of an important signal of its of its of its independence. Part of the criticism of the central bank, you know, pre-crash, if you like, was that it was in the pocket of the Department of Finance that it never really did anything of its own accord. And I think these mortgage rules were kind of an important step by the bank to say, look, we're in charge here, we're the regulator here. Um, and it is think something to needs independently to be done. of the government, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the interesting things at play here. That you know, I suspect that the central bank wants to be seen, wants to be independent, and be seen to be independent. Yet there's a lot of political noise uh, and a lot of interest group noise calling on them to uh, to relent a bit on the mortgage rules. And I think they would be particularly, I would guess, they would be particularly sensitive to political, you know, demands that, that on the minister mm. that the central bank be instructed to do this or instructed to do that. And, and, and they will say, look. 
you can't instruct us to do anything. We'll, we'll listen, we'll consult, but at the end of the day, this has to be uh, this has to be our decision. And I suppose if you look at house price trends over the last year, that you know they've certainly. Uh, the steam has gone out of, out of the market, particularly particularly in the Dublin area. Uh, so still rising, so, though. They're still rising, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I think you know part of the problem for the central bank is they're trying to regulate in a market which is kind of dysfunctional. Uh, building stopped for a few years. You know, as Hubert has alluded to, there's a real lack of supply in the market. So if you had a normal market operating. If you had a normal supply coming on the market and a normal mortgage lending by the banks, you could see these rules fitting in much better. But because the central bank is trying to move at a time when the rest of the market is in a bit of a mess, frankly, it it, it is difficult. And you know, yeah. clearly, particularly for first time buyers, it's, it's it's creating some difficulties. Hubert, isn't it good that the central bank is putting in a framework to protect uh, the banks essentially from themselves, uh, almost? And isn't isn't it also a good discipline for people um, looking to purchase a house? It's a very very substantial financial commitment for them to make that they have a track record of saving and of building a deposit so they have some substantial equity in that property they have skin in the game real skin in the game I, f- I fully agree uh, it's it's right and appropriate we should have good central bank policy uh, but we have to ensure that it's, as Cliff said it's appropriate for the circumstances and the environment we're operating in certainly people have to be protected banks have to be protected but we don't have a normal functioning industry at the moment we don't have a supply of new housing coming on stream to meet the demand that's out there part of the reason why we don't have the supply of new housing coming on stream is that people can't get the mortgages all we're suggesting here is that the policy be reviewed that we look to see how can that policy be tweaked so that people who can afford a mortgage who can afford a higher mortgage could be able to get it if Ultimately, but you see, on the demand side, I don't get it because we're told there's this huge pent-up demand. There are loads of people out there who want to get a home. And surely surely your members, there's lots of land which has been rezoned. Um, surely your members have the land to start building to meet this demand. There, there are plenty of willing buyers, but those buyers don't have the capacity to purchase. And that's the problem. Is until it also the case, as some commentators would argue, that some of your members are hoarding land until the prices rise to such a level that they, they can make a certain profit? I, I, I don't believe builders who want to build are hoarding the lands. There is evidence that some other funders may have purchased land over the last number of years, and I believe they might be waiting on prices to rise. But quite frankly, if a builder has land that he can build on, uh, I have no problem whatsoever with the site value tax that's now proposed by government that's coming into place next year, uh, because you know land that's capable of being developed in the current market should, should be built upon. But we have to remember that a builder can only build on the land if he can get the development finance to build. And he'll only get the development finance when the funder knows with reasonable certainty that there are willing buyers out there with capacity to buy in order to close a sale. You cannot, a builder cannot go out speculatively now, build rows of houses, thinking the purchases are going to be there when he finishes them. He has to have some greater certainty. And I do believe that a tweaking of the central bank regulations uh, could actually help solve that solve that problem yeah. and, and bring more buyers to the market who have the capacity to go and close a sale. We have a curious situation here because there are exemptions from these uh, rules that the central bank allow. For example, in terms of the uh, the, the, the the loan to value ratios, and um, the, the banks can in the case of 15% of their mortgages, mm. they can lend outside those loan-to-value rules, outside the rules that have been put in place by um, by the central bank. And we know from a, a PQ that was uh, put down recently that uh, permanent TSB, you know, a 
a pretty active player in the mortgage uh, market, uh, only went to 11% of that limit. It didn't go to the full 15%. In fact, none of the players have gone to the full 15%. I think the average across the sector is uh, 13%. How does that square with this, again, with this sort of pent-up demand from people wanting to buy houses but they can't get access to funds? Because you know, they're allowed uh, operate outside those rules in 15% of cases and they're not using those 15% well, exemptions. Well, well, at the end of the day, the call will be with the bank whether a person can afford the mortgage or not. Uh, but I do believe that the central bank rules could be modified so that those persons who can actually hit the, hit the rules and achieve the targets can, can meet them. I can't answer for each of the banks who mm. might have issued, issued, you know, used the 11 or 13% flexibility clause. My understanding uh, during last year is that a number of the institutions had actually hit that, hit that target sooner than anticipated. And it did actually result in, in a slowdown in the issue of loans come towards the end of the year. Uh, I stand to be corrected in that, but, but that was my understanding on the ground with regard to what was happening. I think one way or another... Should the bank see fit to tweak the rules in any way? And if it transpired, as Cliff said, if we suddenly saw an increase in house prices, an unwarranted increase in house prices where there was, it was becoming overheated, it certainly opened the central bank to immediately change the rules. We don't want to see anybody get into any financial trouble whatsoever in relation to this matter. But we do need an environment where the industry can start building houses mm. for those who we feel have the capacity to pay for them and want to pay for them. You've also, the Federation has also said that the capacity of the banking sector should be reviewed if the government's target to more than double housing construction activity is to be met. What do you mean by that? Well, it's to ensure that if, if we end up with doubling a uh, level of house building activity, we want to ensure that the banks actually will have the resources in place to allocate mortgages for, for such an increased level of building activity that will take place. And, and how would the government achieve that? Well, it would, we're suggesting that you know it, it must be looked at. They may have to look at the various conventions that are in place in respect of capital ratios. It's just setting down an issue that we feel should be looked at from a government and banking perspective. Yeah, Cliff, what do you make of the CIF's uh, proposals? They're pretty bold, I suppose, going from two twenty to three thirty in terms of threshold. And yeah, absolutely. Three to four, four and a half times in, in terms of the income limit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suppose just 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 pulling back from the CIF. You know, particularly, I, I think one of the interesting things is that when these rules were introduced first, uh, a lot of people were calling for the rule book, rule book to be torn up and saying this was ridiculous and the central bank shouldn't be intervening in this way. Now we have bodies like the CAFs, you know, the, the rules have seem to have been kind of have been accepted as a principle and people are saying, OK, maybe you could change them this way, maybe you could change them that way. Uh, so I think that's, you know, Credit to the central bank, I suppose, for sticking for sticking through the first storm, in terms of the criticism it got uh, when the rules were introduced first. You know, I think there is a case. I, I would have sympathy for, for for people trying to save twenty percent of of of, of a deposit uh, on, on a house, particularly on Irish tax rates, and particularly uh, particularly paying rent in, the, in you know in the Dublin market. I think there may be something there that you know that could be looked at. Uh, the difficulty, I suppose, with making exceptions is you start to run into you start to run into creating more anomalies. So, for example, if you allowed special rules for urban areas, where do you draw the line? What if somebody wants to buy a you know a more expensive property somewhere else? You're probably best to keep it you know to keep it simple. Uh, if you are going to increase the threshold, increase it for everybody. Um, there may be a case to do that. I'd, I'd be a little more nervous, I, I suppose, about increasing the income limit. Uh, there, there is already, as you said, flexibility 
for uh, banks to in a certain mm. number of cases where people have strong repayment records or, or access to funds or uh, are clearly in strong in strong employment to you know to go outside the rules as it is so I think if, if you make if you end up making too many exceptions uh, the rules are the rules kind of become become pointless I, I would suspect you know you could see the central bank looking at looking at the rules and you could see them tweaking them but I, I would be surprised if the changes certainly after the first year go go much beyond a tweak I think the consultation period ends uh, fairly this soon month. I think it's the end yeah. of this month uh, the, the changes that the bank is due to tell us central bank is due to tell us what it thinks by November um, it'll probably keep its powder fairly dry until then we might see we might see a bit of change but I, I doubt it'll be too dramatic yeah, and of course, I mean, should we be worried about stress tests? Uh, the, the European Banking Authority uh, published the findings of these stress tests last Friday evening, as you yeah. and I well know, and it shows that on a in an adverse scenario out to 2018, yeah. that there are, there are issues uh, for the capital yeah. buffers that AIB and Bank of Ireland, the two biggest banks in this market, have. So, yeah. I mean, you know, is that going to play into the thinking of the central bank? I think it. I think it probably will to an extent. Uh, I think what the stress test showed was the banks have adequate capital at the moment. Uh, the banks will, will will remain and will still have adequate capital provided the economy remains on, on a reasonable track. Uh, but they're only what a couple of years out of you know out out of very close to insolvency, out of a situation where they had to be rescued by taxpayers. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. And they do remain vulnerable if you know if there's, if there's non-performing loans. Absolutely, which is mm. which is central to that. And I think Patrick Ahonan said when he was leaving office that it was one of his regrets or, or his main regret that he hadn't made more progress, particularly in terms of residential mortgages uh, under his watch, if you like. So, so that is a big issue. So I think you know, given a few more years of reasonable economic growth, and you know, even the forecasters who are revising their growth forecast post post Brexit are still saying. Oh, we might have grown to four percent this year and three and a half percent next year or whatever. If the economy remains on that kind of track, the banks should be fine. Uh, albeit that they're still a long way from normal operation. And you know, Hubert has a point when he says that the, they may find it difficult to scale up lending because they're only slowly returning to health. Where the vulnerability, I think, has been shown in the stress test is if we do hit trouble post Brexit, if there is a another uh, international downturn. You know, no reason to, to, to forecast that just at the moment, I think, but, uh, yeah. but you never know. Hubert, just going back to the difficulties that first-time buyers, particularly in city areas, might be finding in terms of getting a deposit. What evidence um, do you have, let's say, you know, on-the-ground evidence from your members um, that people are, are saying to developers, now, look, we'd love to buy that house, but we just can't quite get the deposit together at the minute? Well, those that have show houses open will have, you know, a steady stream of potential purchasers coming out of the houses. But a lot of them have difficulties ultimately in getting inadequate loan approval to purchase the purchase the unit, and our members will say that if if they were if those purchasers were able to secure loan approval, there would be a demand for building more houses. Uh, all the figures project that we need about twenty five thousand new houses built in this country annually. Last year, the official completion figure was about twelve thousand six hundred, and in fact, the real level of construction activity for houses on the market would have been closer to seven or eight thousand units. So, I think our members, the, the house builders, will say, if the rules were relaxed to some extent to accommodate those people who have the capacity to pay a mortgage, 
that that would mean that they could actually ramp up a bit more activity on the starter homes in order to meet that demand. And that's an overall target of the government's action plan for housing. And it's, you know, it's it's to satisfy a demand that is is predicted by all our commentators and DDS sorry, in respect of what the housing demand is moving yeah, forward. We don't have, we don't actually have any hard figures, do we? We don't have hard figures. What I would have is just the experience that our house builder members will report to us as to what's happening on the ground in terms of potential purchasers not able to secure the adequate mortgage. Yeah. Cliff, if we had uh, su- more supply in the market, we might have more competition on prices for housing. And that might solve this problem without having to uh, tweak yeah. the numbers at all uh, or tweak the rules at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we, we need more, as you say, we need more supply. We probably need more competition in the in the banking market as well uh, on, on the other side and, and some new entrants into the market. And there are signs of of some new interest sniffing around, and they may uh, they may they may appear over the horizon, albeit probably in a limited form. But you're right. I mean, the the, the whole nub of the issue in the housing market now is lack of supply. Uh, you know, four or five years when uh, everyone just went into uh, hibernation or into retreat. Mm. A lot of builders went out of business. Um, a lot of land, you know, wasn't even started in terms of development, and and it just unfortunately takes a period of time to ramp up from from go to actually finishing properties. Uh, I suppose the worrying thing is that you know it, you'd like to see maybe more signs of uh, of new development starting of, uh, of 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 building accelerating, but there still seem to be, still seem mm. to be barriers to, to to it actually happening, which is which is looking at it from the outside is a, bit, is a bit puzzling. Yeah, what about that point, Hubert? If there was more competition among your members, if there was more supply, if there was more competition on the housing front among your members, particularly in city areas, we probably wouldn't need to tweak these rules at all. Uh, Perhaps, but, but at the moment, there are a number of constraints for supply. Some sites are capable of moving, but a lot more are not, and that they require infrastructure to, help, to open up the lands for development. And the Minister has identified this issue in, his, in the Action Plan for Housing that he published there about a fortnight ago. So we need action under a range of fronts to ensure that supply can be ramped up to, to, to meet the, requ- the required level of activity. Certainly, we'd like a situation where the industry was delivering about 25,000 units per annum. If that was the case, you'd have a lot more competition uh, you know, across the entire spectrum for, for, for housing and I think more choice available to purchasers. And that's that's what that's what we would call a better healthy market than where mm. than where we currently are. Now you've aimed high with your proposals. Uh, what do you think are the chances that the central bank will will take them on board and actually implement them, or have you aimed high deliberately in the hope that they might sort of meet you halfway? No, I I, I believe the as Cliff pointed out, we do need in effect a separate set of of, of uh, recommendations from the central bank, particularly for the city areas where house prices are higher. That may be hard to achieve because, by and large, the current central bank rules operate very effectively in many parts of the country where sales prices are close to or even less than replacement cost. But they are problematic in the city areas. And we feel that if if our proposals were taken on board by the central bank, it actually deal with one of the impediments to supply moving forward. Uh, That allied with opening up of other lands for development, tweaking of the planning process, more infrastructure provision, I think we could make progress. Okay, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, Cliff Taylor and Hubert Fitzpatrick, thank you for joining me. Uh, We'll take a short break now and return with Kira O'Brien's review of the Samsung Galaxy Note 7. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. 
Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Now, welcome back. Uh, the battle between smartphone manufacturers has intensified recently with the launch of Samsung's latest handset, the Galaxy Note 7. Kira O'Brien, our technology reporter, has given it a brief road testing and joins me in studio. Kira, you're very welcome. Um, it's not a phone, it's not a tablet, it's a fablet. I hate that word. I really, that's the one word I despise. Buys that word. It's a phone. You you make calls on it. It's a phone. That's right. We just I hate that word. So what's special about this phone over previous uh, Samsung iterations? Well, basically Samsung this this sector is is kind of their baby. Well, you know Apple has the this was the touch screen phone as we know it, um, and the the tablets. So Samsung came up with this thing. And at the start, this was kind of mocked. This was one of these things that people looked at and thought this is huge. Nobody's ever going to want one of these phones. And you're going back to kind of 2011 when people had kind of like 3.7 inch screen phones and 4 inch screen phones and they were considered big. If you and look this at is 5.7 this is 5.7 inches. 5.7 inches. So it's So I've it's got a, f- I've got an iPhone 6s and it's bigger than that. Oh yes, got yeah, it's bigger than my iPhone 6 uh, 6 plus which is 5.5 inches. So it's the thing is with with, with something like the Note, uh, it's always been a work tool rather than a you know, something that uh, you'd give to your your child, or you know, that somebody would use as kind of like a consumer phone. It it is a work tool. It just bridges both, so you can use it to take photographs. You can use it to take very decent photographs, but you can also uh, hammer out a few emails on it, and that's the, the appeal of large screen phones. And you'd see actually the phone sizes have crept bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, Apple was mm. was kind of forced into abandoning the whole thing of just having a four-inch screen phone a couple of years ago with the launch of the uh, the, the 6 and the 6 Plus. Now, obviously, they've gone back to that again with the, the SE because they discovered there was still a market out there for people who wanted smaller phones. But the majority of phones now, you're looking at and have a five-inch screen as the, the smallest size that you get. And they don't seem that big anymore. And that's because you're doing so much more on them. Um, I suppose with the... The, the networks, the mobile network's getting better with the advent of 4G. You're, you're watching video on them on the move. You're maybe sending a few emails, writing a couple of things, you know. So you want to start going online. screen. You want to, yeah, you don't thing, want to yeah. be peering at, at, at screens the way we used to when, you know, you mm. used to have those tiny little um, black and white uh, mobile phone screens that you used to have on, on Nokia phones. That just won't do anymore. So people are a bit more, um, I suppose they're a bit more welcoming for, for larger screen things. Okay. So the Note 7 doesn't actually seem all that big, especially when you have it in your hand. And as said I had a brief road test of it uh, it doesn't feel too much bigger than the 6 plus right. the iPhone 6 plus no, it's it's made of metal and glass as opposed to plastic. Yeah, that was one of the complaints that uh, I suppose people had about previous Samsung phones was that it didn't feel like a, a premium smartphone. And people like glass, they like metal, they like mm. to feel that they don't, they want something substantial, but at the same time they don't want something that's too heavy. So this so puts it on a par with iPhone, I presume. Oh, it does. Yeah, and and to be honest, Samsung have been doing phones for a long time that are as uh, in design terms are as good as iPhones. If you look at say the six, uh, the S six Edge which was a, a 
going back a couple of years now, but that was the, the one that brought in this curved screen, which actually the Note 7 kind of borrows a little bit from. It's not quite the same kind of curve to the screen, but the idea is that, you know, it's this edge-to-edge screen that you can use the, the, the edge of the screen for, for different things, like you can attach your contacts to it and it just it gives you something a little right. bit extra. Most people won't actually use it, but it's something that's there. And it also has that thing that... Uh, I suppose Apple has decided people didn't really want, which was a stylus. Now, if yeah. the, the, the thinking behind that Does was... Does anybody use those? Well, you would with the S because the S Pen, it's not a dumb stylus because that's the main objection to this thing is that you have um, this plastic stick that you poke at the screen with. The S Pen, particularly the one that comes with the Note 7, does an awful lot more. Like, you can use it to create your own gifts. So if you see a piece of video online that you want to, to create something mm. custom out of and send to a friend, you can. Uh, it translates Just text on websites. Just doesn't it, when you see somebody waving one of these things? I around. wouldn't say pretentious. Well, you don't tend to wave them around. <laughs> you don't tend to wave them around. Uh, well, I don't, anyway. Um, it, you know, that, that's the way you lose things, right? Um it it actually has a function, you know. So you can actually you can take notes on the screen if you want. Um, one of the, the I suppose the, the, the things that they're pushing is that you can take notes on the screen even when the screen is wet. Now, not an awful lot of people are going to actually want to do that. But if you're in the rain, I mean, if you ever tried using your smartphone, you know, if you're trying to get directions for something, and you just it just doesn't work because obviously the rain interferes with the screen. Yeah. The S Pen will still work. It's so. also shatter resistant, and I say hurrah to that because uh, my iPhone six is as slippery as a bar of soap. Yeah, shatter resistant. I, I'm. Obviously, that was one thing I couldn't test out uh, because they tend not to like you uh, smashing their phones oh, on the floor. Uh, I, I think if if it turns out that that, that is true, um, that it will be a big step and something that smartphone makers everywhere should emulate. It's also uh, dust resistant and waterproof, so you, you can if if you drop it down the toilet, hopefully you won't be going in after it. But anyway, if you do, um, it will survive. Right. It will survive a dip in water. Um, so does that mean you don't have to buy a protective cover or wallet for it? No, you don't. But there's a lot of phones out there that have basically have that, that water-resistant uh, function on it and claim to be shatter-resistant as well. That Some of them claim to be more shatter-resistant than others. Okay. But people still put cases on them because shatter-resistant or not, they still get scratched. Okay. Now, uh, storage. It's all about storage these days with smartphones because people are doing so much on them. What's the storage like? The 64 gigabytes built in um, on the, the phone itself, but then you can expand it with a micro SD card, which is something that is, is very welcome because a couple of years ago, Samsung, when they put out the S6, they took away the expandable storage and they brought it back with the S7. That's always been kind of one of the key selling points for me for Samsung phones is that they will actually allow you to, to shove a memory card in there and you can instantly kind of increase your storage by, in this case, up to 256 gigs, which is huge. And especially mm. if you're doing an awful lot of work or, you know, you, you like to take a lot of photographs or even if you like to take video, that sucks up storage very quickly and you'll soon find yourself getting the warnings that your storage is running low. Well, presumably you should be uh, saving all of this stuff to the cloud. Yeah, it, but it a, lot of people, you lose it. a lot of people still keep stuff on their phones. Uh, you can back stuff up to the cloud. Still like to keep things on their phones because if it's great having things in the cloud and I've had this conversation fairly recently about the, the merits of having something that has limited storage and having a cloud connection. That's great as long as you have an internet connection. You go certain places in Ireland, we, we all know that you, know, you go outside of Dublin, uh, you go down the East Coast, you go to places in Wexford, you'll get decent 4G, you go a couple of miles further in yeah, you get sure. nothing so it's all very well having things in store in, in cloud but if you can't get at them because the, the internet connection is rubbish well then they're not used to you may as well not have them Okay and it has a, a novel security feature in that it allows the owner to unlock the phone 
using Irish recognition expanded to me. Yeah, I wasn't um, overly convinced on this to start with because I, I had a, an inkling this might be a gimmick, but it's actually, it works quite well. Samsung has been doing a bit of uh, facial recognition and, and eye recognition stuff, eye, eye tracking for a while. Uh, they used to do this uh, smart stay thing where you take out, you're looking at your phone, you know, sometimes you're reading something on your phone, you don't touch the screen for a while, it times out and you have to go and lock the phone again. Smart stay, what it did was it would actually track where your eyes were. Now they've taken it to, and they've used it as a security feature now and what they do is you give it a scan of your iris, it takes a couple of seconds to set up and then all you have to do is, is press the button and look at the phone so you don't have to rely on fingerprints. It also means that there's a secure folder on the phone. Um, so you can put, say, your work email account in there. Um, what it does is then you can have a work email account in your secure folder and use the same app to have your personal email account outside that secure folder. And it duplicates the app inside the folder so it keeps them completely separate. You can then lock that with your iris scan and you can give other people access to your phone so you could give family members so you say if you have kids you want to give them access to your phone so they can play games on it they can basically use a fingerprint to unlock the phone but they can't get into that secure folder right which is it's it's, it's pretty decent because one of the chief i suppose the chief accusations Sounds about a good tool for james bond or you know one of the chief accusations about, about android is that it's not secure um, this would be, I suppose, it would be a good step in the right direction. Okay, I mean, you've used all the smartphones. Uh, I see you have a, a, an iPhone in front of you there. How does it compare uh, with the, you know, the equivalent iPhones? I think it stands up fairly well, and the Note for me always has stood up fairly well. Um, just having the extra functionality on the S Pen. Obviously, it's not going to be for everyone because not everybody is going to want to have a stylus, but. I know a lot of people who use Notes, previous versions of the Note, and who actually quite like having that extra, as was extra method of, of input, um, and who would never touch an iPhone. There are always going to be people who will never touch an Android phone, in which case they'll they'll stick with the iPhone. But if you're to put the two side by side, I mean, the design it's it's a lovely design. You wouldn't mistake it for an iPhone, which is one of the chief accusations that uh, people level at, at other big screen phones that you will always kind of, it always gets compared to the iPhone in some way, shape, or form. The Note 7 actually stands up on its own. Right, okay. You only gave it a brief road test, but marks out of 10? Marks out of 10. We'll, we'll go with an 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10. Okay, that doesn't sound too bad. Kira Bryan, thank you for that. Um, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Cliff Taylor, Hubert Fitzpatrick and Kira O'Brien. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.